here's what we've been kind of looking at here in the book of Numbers is, is this is kind of like Moses' road trip with his kids in a sense, right? They've been delivered out of Egypt. They spent a month at Mount Sinai there um, as God just imparted his law to them and different things there. The book of Leviticus was that. But now in, in Numbers, we're picking it up from where they left Egypt and now Moses is on this road trip. How many people love road trips? All right. Well, I, w- I remember a road trip we went on one time. When I was seven years old, my family decided, let's take a road trip down to Disneyland. Of course, that's every boy's dream. No doubt about it. But we decided to go with a family um, that were close friends of ours. And we rented a station wagon and all eight of us piled into the station wagon on a road trip down to Disneyland. All right. Two of us were seven, one was three years old, my brother was 10 years old. And so we're just like piling in the back, you know, times getting sick, throwing up and stuff like that. I mean, this is the road trip, right? Well, we've all had memorable road trips, I'm sure. Here's Moses' road trip with his kids. And yes, it's filled with a lot of complaining and grumbling. Are we there yet? When are we going to eat? I'm tired. Can we stop now? And it was filled. That's what Moses is having to deal with here as we're going through the book of Numbers. And here's kind of the outline we've been looking at in Numbers. We see them heading out from Sinai, chapters 1 and 10, and then heading nowhere in the wilderness of Paran, which is right up where Kadesh Barnea uh, is in that area as well, and wilderness of Zin is right in that area. Uh, Then we see now, heading into trouble at Moab as they get themselves closer to the, the promised land and then heading for the promised land in the last few chapters. Again, preparing, getting ready. It can also be broken down like this in the book of Numbers. Chapters 1 to 20 deals with the old generation that's being set aside. And then chapters 21 to 36 is dealing with the new generation that's being set apart. The old generation being set aside, the new generation being set apart for the Lord. So on this journey... We've seen several accounts of people grumbling and complaining over things like not having better food to eat all the way to grumbling against Moses' leadership. And there's some important lessons for us in all these things because Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, in fact, flip over to 1 Corinthians 10. I should have had you flip there already, but 1 Corinthians 10. Now, we're going to just look at verse 6 to 11 here. 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 6. Tell me when you're there. All right. Who's there? You there? Who's there? Okay. 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Paul's talking about the people of Israel, their wilderness wanderings. Verse 7. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as what? Examples. They were written for... Whose admonition? Ours, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul is saying that, listen, all these things that have been recorded, especially as we're seeing through the book of Numbers, things like the complaint that they've done, falling in idolatry, these things are written for our admonition, for our example. Listen, as we go through Numbers, we're not just looking at history, we're looking at how we're not to be repeating 
history and we're to learn from these things here tonight. So this book has great relevance and importance for us. Well, in chapter 20 now, we jump into their 40th year in the wilderness. How long did God say they were to travel in the wilderness before entering the promised land? How many remember? 40 years. A trip that was to take them 11 days from Egypt to the promised land is going to take them 40 years because of unbelief. They doubted God. They complained to the extent where God was going to have that old generation die out. So he allowed them to travel for 40 years. Well, now in chapter 20, we skip right ahead to that 40th year now. It's been 38 years since the 12 spies went into the land and came back with that bad report. At least 10 of them did. That was in Numbers chapter 13. So from Numbers 13 to 20, we're covering these 38 years. Not a lot is really written and detailing those years because there's really not a lot to record other than just all their whining and complaining and moaning. Not a lot to really write down. It's 38 years of seeing that original generation dying off. And here in chapter 20, we're even going to see now Miriam and Aaron, Moses' sister and brother, also die off. Everybody would be impacted by this. And as we move into this chapter, we see the time does not always breed maturity. Do you ever think that sometimes? You think, well, when I get older, then, then I'm going to really get into shape. I'm going to put all these things together. I'm going to really live for the Lord. Listen, maturity does not, or sorry, time does not always breed maturity. See, God allows trials and difficulties to really continue to reveal what's in our hearts. We either learn to respond maturely or we respond childishly. (laughs) Nevertheless, it's intestine that God is seeking to grow us as he shows what's in our hearts so that we can get rid of the things that are going to stunt our growth. And some tests, we're going to just keep on taking until we learn how to pass them, until we learn how to respond the right way. So in chapter 20, God gives a familiar test. It's for a new generation, but it's to ensure they don't follow the old attitudes. Let's see what we can learn here tonight. Chapter 20, we're going to read a bit here. In this chapter, chapter 20, verse 1, let's read along together. It says, Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh and Miriam, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, there was no water for the congregation. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And prayed. No. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brothers died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord in this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? Now remember, this is the new generation. This is, by and large, the the new folk that should have learned. But now they're saying, If only we could have died with our brother. Perhaps talking about Koath, remember? Koath in chapter 16 that contended with Moses and there were 250 of them. Well, Koath and his family were swallowed up by the earth and then fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 supporters of Koath. And they're all saying, oh, if only we could have just died along with them. And I'm sure Moses is sitting here saying, yeah, I wouldn't mind that myself, actually. That wouldn't have been too bad. But verse five, and why have you made us Come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place. It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. 
and they fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So, verse 9, Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly and the congregation and their animals drank. All right, wonderful, good stuff. But look at what we read in verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hallowed among them. Now, this is a very familiar situation. They've been through this before. They're out in the wilderness and they're lacking water. And so... They do what comes very naturally to them. They complain. They grumble. They gripe with Moses and Aaron. Oh, why have you brought us out here? Why can't we be back in Egypt? They're longing for the comforts of Egypt when they should have been looking to God. Yeah, they're in a predicament. They're in a tough spot. But they've got a good God who's already shown himself faithful in those same situations. So instead of looking back To Egypt, they should have simply been looking at God and calling out to him. Well, that's what Moses and Aaron do. And Moses is given a word. Go ahead and speak to the rock, Moses. Speak to the rock. Now, again, they've been through this before. Exodus chapter 17. We remember seeing there that they were lacking water. And so God tells Moses to do what? Strike the rock. Strike the rock and water's going to flow out. Moses does just that and they drink from a rock. <laughs> drinking from a rock. We're not talking a drink on the rocks. We're talking drinking from the rock, right? It's amazing. And so now they've been there. They've seen this happen. And so now God says, Moses, this time I want you to speak to the rock. But Moses doesn't quite do it this way. Moses goes and he strikes the rock. And then we hear that God says, Moses, because you guys didn't believe me, because you didn't hallow me in my name, you're not going to enter the promised land. Now that seems pretty harsh, pretty severe. And you're kind of thinking, how could this be? That's a tough situation. But God's not going to let them go in because of this one incident. Why is that? Why such a harsh punishment for Moses? Well, let me say a few reasons I believe that we see here in the word. First of all, because Moses disobeyed God. Moses was told to speak to the rock, but he struck it twice, just like he did last time. Perhaps Moses is thinking to himself, speak to the rock? Lord, that's going to look really strange if nothing happens. I've got the whole congregation. I'm going to be standing up here by a rock saying, hey, can I have some water? Please give me some water. And everybody's going to be looking at me, speaking to a rock, thinking I've gone insane. Moses perhaps is thinking, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem like it's going to do anything. Speak to a rock. So Moses takes the rod and he strikes it twice. God graciously supplies water. But it says there, because you didn't believe me, verse 12. 
because you didn't believe me. Moses here struggled with unbelief. What was it that kept the whole generation out of the promised land? Unbelief. Look at what we read in Hebrews 3, 17 to 19. It says, Now with whom he, was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. There it is right for us there in God's word. So Moses disobeyed God. He disobeyed God because of a lack of faith. Secondly, I believe Moses was kept out because he misrepresented God. Moses came and he spoke harshly to the people. What does he say? Here now, you rebels. He just starts welling up with this kind of authoritative voice. Here now, you rebels. And he strikes the rock. Was God angry with the people? Was God speaking that way? No. Moses let his own emotions get the better of him and he sinned. God wasn't angry. God wasn't in a rage. Never should we ever represent God as being a God who's flying off the handle in a rage. Because that's not the God we serve. It's a merciful, long-suffering, gracious God, full of love. And every time we let our emotions begin to take control, rather than us controlling our emotions, we open the door for sin to have its way. And we open the door for us to be people that are misrepresenting God. And oftentimes with unfavorable results. Just ask Moses here. Thirdly, Moses exalted himself. He put himself in the position of what God could only do. What did, what did Moses say? He said there in the end of verse 10, must we bring water for you out of this rock? <laughs> Moses strikes rock. Hey, you hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you once again? Must you bother me to come up to this rock and get you water once? Moses, hold on. This has nothing to do with you. This isn't about Moses. This is about a miracle that only God is able to perform. It's not anything to do with you, Moses. So Moses exalts himself in this scene and in this situation. It's a divine act of God. And Moses didn't give credit where it's due. He didn't give glory to God. He didn't hallow God. And lastly, I think this is such a severe punishment because Moses dishonored Christ. Well, how so, you might say. Listen, I'm glad you asked. Because remember that passage we already read in 1 Corinthians 10? Well, listen, we started in verse 6, but let me read to you what it says in verse 1. It says, It's moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the, cl- under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was who? Christ. You see, there was a wonderful picture taking place here. That I believe God was looking to have recorded down. The first time Moses is told, strike the rock. Who's the rock? It's Christ. Jesus came the first time to this world. And it says in the word that he was smitten. He was struck for our affirmities for our sin for our wrongdoing jesus paid the price he he suffered on the cross he took the death blow for us and as we look to jesus we recognize there by what he did for us on the cross by receiving the 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 blow for our own sin we can be forgiven 
It's by what he did on the cross that living water now flows out to us. But listen, now that we put our faith in Jesus, we don't have to come back and see Jesus crucified over and over again, suffering for our sin, as some might say. We just need to speak to the rock. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, we just speak to the rock now and that water flows out that brings cleansing, that brings forgiveness, that brings strength, that feeds us and nourishes us. We just speak to the rock. We don't need to say, Jesus, man, I need another sacrifice. I need something to happen. No, it's already accomplished. Just speak to the rock. Speak to Jesus now. Confess and he comes and he pours into you. There was a wonderful picture here that Moses was messing up. He dishonored Christ in that. So, with this new generation, God is revealing that they need to trust the Lord and walk in obedience. Nobody gets a free pass in this. Even Moses now. Sadly, for all that he's done, all that he's had to put up with, nobody gets a free pass. It requires obedience and faith in the Lord. Well, the chapter ends with the Israelites being refused passage through Edom in verse 14, and and then the death of Aaron is recorded, but But Aaron died being gathered to his people. He's not cut off from his people, as the expression usually is concerning those that died by the hand of divine justice. Rather, he is gathered to his people as one that died in the arms of divine grace. I think a wonderful picture there, just God's grace. So Numbers 33, uh, 38 to 39, we won't turn there right now, but in Numbers 33, it tells us that Aaron died in the 40th year of their wanderings at 123 years old so he's an old man he dies now gathered to his people a great thing but again it's in the 40th year of their wilderness wandering so this is where we're at in the timeline now chapter 21 we see a new test the canines come against them and and it actually takes them as prisoners and guess what no complaining or grumbling No tax on Moses. In fact, they turn to the Lord and make a vow with him that if he helps them, they will destroy all the people and their cities there in chapter 21. And they did and named that place Horma, which means utter destruction. They called the Lord, if you'll help us and you'll deliver us from their hand, the Canaanites that have taken them captive, we will just utterly destroy all these things. We're We're gonna follow you in all this. And they do just that. And so they named that place Horma at the end of verse three. Horma means... Utter destruction. And I think, again, that's exactly how it goes for us. When we choose to destroy those wicked things in our lives, areas of sin, strongholds, when we're ready to do business and say, I am going to utterly destroy these things. And again, that's through the Lord's help. But Lord, we want to see these things utterly destroyed in my life. Then we find ourselves being set free from that which seeks to bring us into captivity. Because that's all that sin is going to do. It wants to bind you up, bring you into captivity. But when we seek to do business with that, destroy it, like these people were determining to do against Canaanites, and they're set free. They're delivered from all that was holding them back. Well, we see another test in chapter 21, verse 4. Look at what we read there. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor, by the way, the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way, and the people spoke. Oh, man against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water in our soul. Loaves this worthless bread. Here we go again. Sadly. Can you believe it? Just when we think we're getting on track here, this new generation is getting it. 
They're falling back into, again, familiar territory now. They get discouraged and they complain. Surprise, surprise, right? But this time, God takes up a notch. And God, in chapter 21 here, verses 6 to 9, he sends fiery serpents that bit the people and many of them died. It's kind of as though God is really looking to nip this attitude of unbelief in the bud. He wants to take it out of them lest they miss out on the blessing that he has for them. So he's like, all right, it's time to ramp this up here. It's time to turn this up a notch and say, listen guys, I want you to realize the, the harm, the danger when you complain and grumble and fail to believe what I'm going to do. So he sends fiery serpents. Listen, their attitude won't change in the promised land unless their attitude has changed in their hearts. That's what God is looking to do. Bring them to that place where they have a change of heart. So the people came to Moses and they got spiritual pretty quick here, all right? Doesn't, it doesn't take much. Just a few fiery serpents and a few people dying around them to go, oh, okay, maybe that was the wrong strategy. Let's, let's kind of get back to the Lord here. So verse seven, let's read that. It says this. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Nothing like a little affliction, right? To get us on our knees before God. (laughs) To make us realize, oh man, I got to get right with you, God, here. C.S. Lewis said, We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so here's the people now. They're getting the attention of the Lord here. Or, or God's getting their attention through this affliction that came upon them. But now look at the instruction God gives Moses. Verse 8. Let's read along here. It says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Wow, that is cool. Now you might be asking, why was it a serpent that they were to look at? The very thing that poisoned them in the first place and brought death. It seemed that that would be a strange symbol to look at, wouldn't you think, right? That'd be as strange as speaking to a rock for water to come out. But the serpent was a symbol of sin and evil in God's word here. In the Bible, that serpent, of course, we know the enemy came in the Garden of Eden to tempt uh, Eve and, and Adam there as a serpent. It's a symbol of sin or evil. And the people need to look at and realize what was causing their pain and suffering. The Israelites may have thought, listen, I don't want to look at that. Man, that's weird. It's going to freak me out. I'm scared of that. I'll be okay. I'll get over this. I'll manage. But... They needed to deal with the problem that was before them. They were hurt. They were afflicted because of a serpent. And they need to attend to that. They need to deal with that. Just like so many of us where, where people are, are, are hurting, they're suffering, and it's a sin issue, and yet they're afraid to look at that sin issue. They're afraid to deal with it. They'd rather look at every other kind of remedy that they could find rather than going, I need to confess my sin. I need to repent of this. That's exactly what God was, in a sense, calling the people to do. The wonderful thing is that sin has been judged. What kind of serpent was that to be on a pole? A bronze serpent. Bronze is that picture of judgment in the Bible. Over and over again, we see things that are made of bronze that are, are, are depicting this area of judgment. In other words, this 
poisonous serpent was judged. It no longer had an effect on you if you looked toward it in faith. And that's it. You didn't need to touch it. You didn't need to put it around your neck. You didn't need to get on the pole with it. You just needed to look at it and believe it would save you. You know, Jesus used the same account here in Numbers 21 to drive home an important parallel to Nicodemus as Nicodemus comes and asks him, you know, how can a person go to heaven? And Jesus said in John 3, 14 and 15, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The next verse, John three sixteen, the most probably well-known verse in the Bible is right there. But this is what leads into that. Jesus using this account here to say, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. A man, a person today, can only be saved by looking unto Jesus. Because it's there on the cross that Jesus took our sins. It's there on the cross that Jesus was judged. The bronze servant pictured judgment. Jesus was judged for our sin. That whoever would look unto him, believe in him, would not perish, but would find eternal life, salvation. He took God's wrath and judgment for sin so that we would not have to. And now when we look to Jesus in faith, believing that we are saved through him, our sin is dealt with, taken care of, it's judged. You know, that serpent was put on a pole. And that pole would most likely have been the pole from the, the, the banner, the standard that they would each tribe would have representing them. We, we read about that earlier in Numbers. And that pole would have a banner across it. So in other words, it's a pole that goes up and a cross piece the serpent sitting on a cross as they look to it they would see again what jesus would eventually do for the whole world so wonderful well the rest of chapter one we see israel strengthened we see enemies defeated but then we come to a very interesting account in chapters 22 to 25 and that account deals with a man by the name of Anybody? Balaam. Balaam here. An interesting fellow who is mentioned some 59 times in scripture. Balaam was one of the many prophets of Eastern religions who worshipped kind of all the gods of the land. It was a very kind of eclectic sort of thing. Many of these false teachers had great power, had great influence. So when they pronounced a, a blessing or a curse, it was considered as true prophecy. So when King Balak, he's the, he's the king of Moab, Balak, you see, saw all the children of, of, of Israel gathering there around Moab and he sees how huge these people are, how great a number they are, upwards of three million people. And he just is filled with fear and dread of the people. And he's thinking, I'm not going to stand against them in battle. So he thinks, up, what's another way that I could see them kind of weakened or defeated? He thinks, I'm going to hire somebody to come and pronounce a curse upon them. So, that's where Balaam comes in. Look at Numbers 22, and we'll start in verse 5. We'll read a few verses here. Numbers 22, verse 5. Then he, Balak, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. 
Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? So Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me saying, look, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. Now, Balaam here, he is a real enigma, a real puzzle to us. He's a strange dude. And it seems that, you know, he has some knowledge of the one true God. And it seems on some level, he has a relationship with God. He says, hey, I'm going to go. You guys lodge here. I'm going to go and inquire the Lord. He begins to ask the Lord about all this. But it's a very hard issue for us to reconcile how this all worked and to what degree of knowledge or relationship that he had with God. It seems apparent he didn't know the relationship that God had with Israel. That's maybe more important here because God gives a pretty clear-cut answer. You shall not curse the people. They're a blessed people. They're my people. And Balaam, don't even think about coming and trying to do anything against them. It's not going to go well with you. But Balaam, you see, he's not very satisfied with that answer because he presses it a little bit more. All right? He's, he's not willing just to give up on that. Monetary compensation is being flashed in front of him. And he's trying to leave the door open to take part in this agreement with Balak. So Balaam got up, saddled his donkey, and rode off with the prince of Moab. Look at verse 21 there. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Now, God had said to him, when, when Balaam kind of pressed it, he said to him just a few verses earlier, listen, if the men come and seek you in the morning, if they come and call for you, then you can go with them. But you should only say, you can only say the word which I speak to you. But here we don't read anything of the men coming and calling to him in the morning or seeking him out. Just as Balaam rose in the morning, settled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. And like I said, this is where things really get interesting now all right this is where things start to unfold for us that you are very familiar with in the story they're riding along and the angel of the lord this is a christophany now a pre-incarnate appearance of jesus this angel of the lord stands in the way balaam is on the donkey and all of a sudden the bonky the donkey the bonky <laughs> that's that's kind of what they were together here just, this donkey just comes to a, a halt Balaam doesn't see what's going on, but the donkey does. And so the donkey turns around. Then, as they're walking along, again, the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path with a wall on either side, right? And the donkey once more sees the Lord and he pushes up against the wall and he crushes Balaam's foot. And Balaam is just irate at this point. And he starts, you know, beating the donkey, thinking, what are you doing? And a third time, the angel of the Lord stood before them in a narrow place where there was nowhere now for the donkey to turn around or do anything. So the donkey just lay down underneath Balaam, it says. And by this time, Balaam has just 
had it. So he beats the donkey again. Then, look at verse 28 of Numbers 22. Then, verse 28, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what, it's, it's interesting that it's a, a female. She, okay, all right. I didn't notice that, but I'll leave that with you. Don't go too far with that, men. All right. Um, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, that's kind of funny, isn't it? I mean, Balaam doesn't freak out. What are you doing talking to me? He just starts having a conversation with a donkey. Balaam, all right. Very cool. Balaam said to the donkey, because you've abused me. I wish there were a sword in my hand for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, no. I mean, not only is the donkey talking, but he's got a pretty good vocabulary. He's using words like disposed. I'm like, I don't even have that in my vocabulary. Here's the donkey. Have I ever been disposed to do this to you before? Man, it's great. It's good. Then, verse 31, the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. Wow. Now, here's the question for us. How has Balaam's way been perverse? Well, I think we can begin to kind of put the picture together a little bit as we consult other scripture to see that Balaam is a man that's driven by greed and selfishness here. He's looking to, to prosper financially through this, through this agreement. Look at what we read in 2 Peter 2, verse 15. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Jude, verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. And perished in the rebellion of Korah. So Balaam gets mentioned in these two passages in Scripture. He'll get mentioned again in Revelation. But here we see as we begin to fit the, the, the picture together a little bit more. That here's a man that's being driven by greed, selfishness. Looking to prosper off of cursing God's people. So Balaam here, he has a bit of a show of repentance. But we'll see in the end it wasn't lasting. Nevertheless, God lets Balaam go, but again, only to speak the word that he would give him, that God would give him. So chapter 23 records the first prophecy that Balaam gives. And in it he states, how shall I curse whom God has not cursed? Verse 8, right? How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And, and how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? His second prophecy begins to reveal a bit more the character of God. All right? Um, we begin to see now just him revealing how good God has been in a sense to his people. Balak decided to take Balaam to a different location now. After Balak's realizing, uh, I hired you to curse God's people. All you're doing is pronouncing, you know, the wonders of God and the blessing on these people. Well, he thinks maybe a different location is going to bring about better cursing. So <laughs> they move to the top of Peor. And there we read in chapter 24, verse 2. Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes and the spirit of God came upon them or came upon him. 
Remember, according to their tribal positions and populations, the camp would have looked more like a cross than anything else. Look at, here's that idea of, of, of the population and the placement of all the tribes around the camp. And as they're taken up to a high mountain now, they're going to look down and say, man, look at this picture here that they see. And, and here now is where Again, we begin to see that God kind of gets a hold of him because it's the Spirit of God that comes upon him. And the third prophecy shows God's great provisions and blessings on Israel. See, Balak is none too happy about all this and he threatens to keep his pay now. But Balaam pleads with him saying that he could only speak what he was directed to say. And now Balaam, here in chapter 24, throws in a fourth prophecy. Kind of a bit of a freebie for him. And this is one that lays out some remarkable prophecy for us. Look at chapter 24, verse 17. Here's Balaam's fourth prophecy that he's not told to give, but he just kind of throws this one on, on Balak. It says in verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Interesting. Who's he speaking of here? Speaking of Jesus. I see him, but not now. He has this idea of this one that's going to come. I behold him, but not near. Jesus is going to come to this world at a future time. And it's going to be this one's going to come, this Messiah, this star. Remember, Jesus referred to himself as the bright and morning star in Revelation 22, verse 16. It's going to have this scepter, this place of authority that he's going to bring. So this remarkable prophecy that this strange man, Balaam, gives. And then Balaam left and he went home, unable to curse the Israelites. But then in chapter 25, we read this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 25. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the woman of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Wow. Here we see now something happening. And this is all interestingly linked to Balaam. And you might be wondering, well, how? I thought Balaam's gone home. Well, Balaam wasn't able to curse Israel. But he knew how they could get themselves cursed. It tells us in Numbers 31, in fact, if you want to just look over real briefly, skip ahead to Numbers 31, verse 16, just so you can see it yourself here. It says in Numbers 31, verse 16, look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. You see, Israel in chapter 25 entered into unholy relationships that they were not to enter into. And it's through the counsel of Balaam that perhaps came to Balak and said, listen, Balak, I can't curse these people. But here's what you can do. You can get your daughters to kind of pray themselves in front of them. And if the men begin to get into relationships with them, it's going to hurt them. Because that's not what God has for them. Balaam gives them this counsel. And it's obviously they follow through in that. And now God sends his plague upon the people once more that kills off 
many of them. Well, chapter 26 now, moving along, gives us the details of the second census. Remember, this book is kind of divided into two senses. The first census given that goes through the first generation, and now we see another count going on of the next generation, a new generation. The first census counted 603,550 men that were able to go to war. Men over 20, I believe it was, that were apt for war. All right? But now we read here, um, in verse 51 of chapter 26, these are those who were numbered of the children of Israel, 601,730. There's a decline in population. In other words, in these 40 years, there's been no growth. There's been no population growth. Years spent complaining and grumbling and not trusting God. And we see a decrease. Listen, we can't expect growth in our lives unless we're walking with joy and gladness and trusting God for all things. If we're walking around always finding the things to grumble about and complain about, not walking in belief, listen, there are going to be years in your life that are going to be marked with unfruitfulness, with a lack of growth. It's not what God has for us. God wants us to continue on into maturity, in a perfection in Jesus, doesn't he? And that comes as we continue on walking in obedience, looking to him, trusting him, and just having hearts that are full of joy and gladness. Well, the end of chapter 27 announces now the new leader that God's going to have take his people into the promised land. And that new leader would be Joshua. And Moses begins to equip him in that. He's been a, an assistant of Moses. And God says, I'm going to give the spirit on you and put it on him. And so Joshua's going to be the guy that's going to lead the new generation. And as there's a new generation on the scene, it's time to review the kinds of offerings and sacrifices that God had earlier ordained. Time to refresh them in the things that God has for them. Though the generation has changed, God hasn't. And God says, these are still the things that I want you to follow and heed in your own life. So chapters 28 to 30 are going to cover various offerings and feast requirements. So if you've got headings in your Bible, you can just kind of look at those. There's going to be daily offerings Sabbath offerings, monthly offerings, offerings that are going to pertain to the Feast of Tabernacles and, and Atonement and, and Feast of Trumpets and all the like. And so, different laws concerning vows. So that's what's kind of being reviewed for them and for this new generation to bring them up to speed in a sense. Chapter 31 now deals, uh, details a battle against the Midianites and with it a great and successful defeat of them where they prosper where they have much return from the war much plunder and so god again is starting to show them that you move forward in faith trusting me you're going to be blessed as a result of that chapter 32 we see a sad account that often gets played out in the lives of believers you see israel right now they're on the border of the promised land ready to inherit the blessings that god has for them yet two tribes here it tells us reuben and Gad decide that they're quite comfortable just remaining on the east side of the Jordan River. God desires to bring all his people in the promised land, but they say, you know what? It's quite nice out here. The fields are fertile, it's lush. Why don't we just stay here rather than going into the promised land? And you see, 
so many people kind of fall into that same kind of pattern and attitude where they get comfortable, they get complacent and think, you know what? I think I'm just going to camp out here for a while. Where, where God is saying, you know what? Here's what I have for you. All you need to do is continue to move forward and, and you're going to receive just great blessing. You're going to receive all that, that I have for you. The sky's the limit with God, yet how often do we settle into mediocrity or, or settle into complacency and comfortability and miss out on what God actually has for you? Keep moving forward in the Lord, guys, and see the blessing that awaits you. Chapter 33 now chronicles just really the whole travels uh, of Israel out of Egypt and to the promised land. Each of their stops is listed. Here's a little bit of a map that we see of their wilderness journey. Yeah, here's, here's, I don't know if you're going to be able to see that. Can, can anybody see that? Are those, okay. So that gives you a little bit of a detail now of coming out of Egypt um, and, and all their journey. And, and again, that wilderness of, uh, of Paran, wilderness of Zin, that area, they kind of spend a lot of time up around there. Kadesh Barnea, as you'll see, um, is where they entered into the promised land and spied out. They came back and, and they're just wandering around while that generation had died out. They come back down the Red Sea. And, and again, they were going to move up right through Edom before, but he wouldn't give them passage through. And so they, they have to go around Edom and, uh, and they don't bother with Moab. They go around Moab as well. And then at the end of the chapter, chapter 33, we read this. Look at chapter 33, verse 50. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. Verse 53, You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. And you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance. There everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Wow. So God gives a very specific warning to his people here. Drive out the people of the land. Destroy all the things that are part of that land. But we know the history here is Israel went in. They didn't quite drive out all the inhabitants. They allowed certain things to remain, places of uh, idol worship. And Israel began to fall prey to those things. Sin will have the same effect on us. If we're not careful to do business with sin and drive it out and say, I don't want anything to remain in my life. We get so, so good at kind of hiding out little areas that we think this isn't hurting anybody. Nobody has to know about this, but I'm going to hide this out, kind of tuck away in this little area of my heart here that it's going to be all right. But like God said to the people, they're going to be an irritant to you. If you let some of them remain, they're going to be an irritant to you. And that sin will never be a help or a friend to you. It'll be an irritant to you if you do not drive it out. That's the word that God would have for us here. 
Don't let anything remain in your heart and in your life that is not of the Lord. Because it's only going to be a detriment and an irritant to you. Chapter 34 lays out now the boundaries of the promised land. Now when you compare this with Genesis 15 and other passages that deal with the, the allotment that's given to Israel. Now I've heard different kind of numbers on this and the, the, the size of the land that God was actually given to them. One number I heard and, and seen this before and it could be right, it may not. So check it out. Don't trust me on this. But I've heard that the land that God was giving them was 300,000 square miles. 300,000 square miles. Now, Israel only acquired one-tenth of that. In the heyday, in the zenith of Israel's dynasty, they only acquired one-tenth of it. Now, whether it's 300,000 square miles, whether it's less than that, here's the truth. And this is what many agree on, that Israel only took just a tenth of what God desired to give them. Amazing. I wonder how much we may be missing out because we fail to believe that God has more for us. We fail to just walk in those areas that God is giving us. God didn't say, hey, you know what? If you do this and you do that, then I'll give you the land. God just says, I've given you the land. It's yours. Take it. Every place where you set your foot, I've given it to you. But they only took a tenth of what God said he would give them. Oh, may we not fall short of what God has for us. Chapter 35, we see Levites are to be spread out to the land. Remember, all the tribes of Israel were given a portion of the land, but the Levites were not to have their own portion. They wouldn't have a, a tribal allotment. They, because they had the service of priests serving in and around the tabernacle, they would be having cities all around the land so that they could continue on ministering to God's people and being that voice of just you know, passing on the truth of the law and God's word. So they were to be spread out. Chapter 35 details the cities for the Levites. And chapter 35 also details an interesting situation with the cities of refuge. Now, there were to be six cities appointed where the person that accidentally killed another person could go to and find refuge. Because uh, according to God's law, there would be that avenger blood. If you had gone and killed you know, somebody, well, there'd be a family member, an avenger of blood that would say, all right, I got to take care of this guy. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We're going to take him out now. But sometimes that person might act without hearing the whole story. And maybe there was a situation where, you know, somebody was driving along, you know, riding their donkey and you know, the man jumped out in front of the donkey, rode over him. It was mass order. It wasn't intentional. But this avenger blood would just come along and say, I'm going to take you now. I'm going to take you out. So God supplied six cities of refuge spread out all around. Three actually were on the east side of the Jordan River where those two, I said Reuben and Gad, and, and that's what it records for us there, but it was also a half tribe of Manasseh as well. So two and a half tribes settled on the east side of the Jordan River. They received three cities of refuge, three also west of the Jordan River in the Promised Land. Where now, if a person had killed somebody accidentally, they could run to a city of refuge and seek asylum. And now the avenger of blood could do nothing to them. And there, the, the issue would be brought before the, the judges there to receive a fair trial in a sense. So six cities of refuge. 
And there's a great correlation between the cities of refuge and Jesus. Here's what we see here. Because the cities of refuge now and Jesus are within easy reach. Again, God didn't supply just one. He supplied six so that every person would have the ability to get to a city. There would be something close by within reach. Jesus himself has made himself available. Secondly, both Jesus and the cities of refuge are available for all. This wasn't even just for the Israelites. No one needs to fear that they could be turned away from their place of refuge in their time of need. This was available for all. Jesus has made himself available for all. Thirdly, both Jesus and the cities of refuge are the only solution for the one in need. That person that might have killed somebody unintentionally can't just run to any city and say, wait, I'm in a city here. Wait, this is my city. You can't do anything to me here. No, they need to be in a city of refuge. Just as it is today. There might be people that say, oh wait, I'm looking to this source to find salvation. No, no, that's not going to cut it for you. You need Jesus. It can only be supplied in Jesus. It's the only solution. Fourthly, both Jesus and the cities of refuge provide protection only within their boundaries. See, here's the thing. Tells us in chapter 35 that they need to remain in the city. If they ventured outside the city and the avenger blood comes and finds them, they're fair game. A lot of times people like to kind of venture outside of the Lord or or think that, you know, they can find other things that are going to supply for them. No, you got to remain in Jesus. You got to remain in Jesus. You got to abide in Him. It's only in Him that you're going to find salvation. And lastly, with both Jesus and the cities of, uh, cities of refuge, full freedom comes with the death of the high priest. That's interesting. So that person could remain in the city of refuge, but once the high priest died, then he was, he was given full freedom. Nobody could do anything to him any longer. It's the same for us, isn't it? Because who's our high priest? Jesus. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our great high priest who went all the way for us gave himself up for us, sacrificed himself, died for us so that we could be given freedom. John 8, 36 says, Therefore the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. It's only found in Jesus. An important distinction between Jesus and the cities of refuge that are different is that the cities of refuge only help the innocent, but the guilty can come and find refuge in Jesus and find salvation. He's accepting all people that are ready to call out to him and repent of sin and find life in him. Praise the Lord for that. Well, chapter 36 continues on just to give just some requirements for people, females that are marrying and, and again to keep the, the tribal land within the tribes and not getting passed on. So that's kind of how it ends. Well, we're going to end today with just finishing up the video that we've been looking at and, and going through each of these books here. And so uh, I think, I hope we have sound going on the sound board there. And so we'll watch this video and then we'll wrap it up.